Hello and a warm welcome to our continuing series of podcasts, part of the Church of England's Living in Love and Faith initiative. In this episode, pegged to chapter 7 of the LLF book, we're looking at religion in society, focusing on how the Church of England has viewed and even modified the way it looks at human sexuality, relationships and marriage, and the doctrinal principles governing individual behaviour. And we ask whether we need to look at the Church's current guidelines, possible instructions even, in these matters. Just as in a complete deck of cards, I have four aces. A learned card table of theologians and historians dealing us their scholarly hand. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. Now, following the Second World War, the Church of England was considered to be one of the country's defenders of civic virtue. But from the 50s onwards, the state has increasingly become the curator of health, welfare and education. Throw in the influence of secularism, a decline in church attendance and the Church of England has found itself having to rapidly evaluate accelerating government legislation and respond accordingly. So how far does the church's influence reach now in upholding the Christian faith on the national stage? Is the biblical enlightenment on gender and same-sex marriage? Or is society just working out its own salvation and parameters around sexual behaviours? That's religion, the church as a listening post. Let me introduce my four guests who have all given long hours of service on the Living in Love and Faith Coordinating Group, the Theology Working Group and the History Working Group. The Right Reverend Dr Toby Howarth was consecrated Bishop of Bradford in 2014. He's a specialist in interfaith relations and former tutor in Islamic studies, going on to become the current Archbishop of Canterbury's Inter-Religious Affairs Secretary. Dr Amy Dawson is a lecturer at the University of Birmingham, where she teaches political theology, theological anthropology and ethics. With a PhD from Trinity College Dublin, Amy is also a research associate with the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology, Cambridge. The Reverend Canon Dr Andrew Goddard is a Senior Research Fellow of the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics in Cambridge. He's also Adjunct Assistant Professor of Anglican Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary in California and an Assistant Minister at St James the Less in London. Canon Professor Mark Chapman is Vice Principal and Academic Dean of the Church of England Seminary, Ripon College, Cudson where he is lecturer in systematic theology. He's a graduate of Trinity College, Oxford, and has researched and written extensively on the history and theology of Anglicanism. Mark, we talked in the introduction about the relationship between church and state since the war. Where would you say that relationship is now, particularly when it comes to social welfare and morality? At the beginning of the post-war period, the church was uh, uh, intimately connected with the foundation of the welfare state, with setting up a lot of the ideas behind that. 
But as things have moved on, so uh, the church has, in some senses, left the state to carry on in its own direction there. Uh, and so uh, in lots of the ways the church has engaged with society has been focused around retaining some sense of being the moral voice for society. And gradually, I think what's happened is that society has done things uh, and gone out on its own in its own direction. Uh, and the speed of that is, I think, something that the church has found very difficult to keep up with. And what sort of pressure then does that bring on the church on a local level and also within General Synod? I mean, the church doesn't have a quick way of responding and often if it responds rapidly it will say things that then in hindsight seem to be very misguided and misjudged. So one of the things it's difficult to do in a kind of a world of sound bites is to be reflective. And what we're trying to do at the moment is to be reflective in a society that is kind of hyperactive. And we've seen that with just the speed of change. Nobody could have expected the legalisation of, of same-sex marriage so, so quickly. The whole changing nature of other institutions and the acceptability of homosexuality right across the board. Toby, as a vicar in the early 2000s, you served a parish in a large Muslim area of Birmingham. And although we're concentrating on the Church of England's past and present morality dilemmas, I, I'm curious about whether you think that there are any parallels with the experience of British Muslims. I think there are. And I think one of those parallels is that many of our religious communities, including my own, holds together a tradition with practice which sit quite uncomfortably with, with, with each other. A Muslim friend told me the other day when I talked to, to him about it, he said, I'm aware that as Muslims in Britain, we are protected by the same legislation, which also protects people um, of a different sexual orientation. And we can't just unpick that. So I want to be welcoming to people who are gay into my mosque. But that means that they may well then be standing shoulder to shoulder with me and literally rubbing shoulders as I pray to God. And I find that really uncomfortable. It's that sharpness which I really appreciate because it, it says to me, how are we dealing with that same sharpness? Amy, one of the subjects you teach is theological anthropology the thinking through the meaning of the human story as it's lived out before, with and by God. What do you do to relate that to the everyday believers and non-believers? That is such an interesting question because the relationship between what we might feel is an abstract philosophical idea and then the actual experience of living, that the relationship between those two things was really present in my mind all the way through this process. There were certain moments where we had the opportunity to share pieces of our conversation as we went through, so with the College of Bishops or with groups at the General Synod. And the challenge there was to capture the relationship between the abstract bit and the actual practice sufficiently quickly to to explain the connection. It's not so much that the abstract and the practical don't go together, it's that they take a bit of explaining. Now, one of the things that I also teach is practical theology. And that's a discipline of theology that takes really seriously the idea that the actual practices, that ways of being in the world, ways of relating to each other, are themselves sites of theological meaningfulness. So the, the ways in which we do things can, can contribute to how we understand the larger ideas that are implicitly shaping the practices 
in turn. And that can be as big as the nature of God, the nature of creation, the purpose of humanity or our moral responsibility to each other, those those kinds of enormous questions. I, I suppose to very crudely condense that down, are you saying it, it it's how you live the gospel? I think that's right. It is how you live the gospel. There's another layer to that, which is also how you understand how you're living the gospel. And self-understanding then is how we enrich our own communities of practice, but also the expression of that self-understanding is how we contribute to the wider national conversation. Andrew Goddard. I think you used the language, Amy, of complexification. And that actually what whatever our views are on these things we might think are quite simple are interconnected with a whole load of other different issues it was fascinating to hear toby talk about that in relation to interfaith we look at it in the resources in relation to different church denominations and how they have responded to those who are maybe not living as that church thinks they should and how we fit those pieces together is what i think many of us have been wrestling with and we hope the church will wrestle with through these resources leading on from that andrew Acknowledging perhaps the emerging gap between church teaching and the wider social beliefs and practices, what's been the effect on, if you like, the church's sense of itself? As Mark was saying, we have seen society change rapidly over before we take it back through to the 1960s and changes in divorce law and homosexual law. And in those often the church was in a sense, stepping back and letting the state make changes to laws that were going against the church's teaching. But it's been a particular challenge, I think, for the Church of England as the established church um, to work out what that means. It took a long time over divorce and issues around divorce. We're having been involved in changes in society and laws in the 1960s. We agreed in principle in the 1970s that we could maybe marry people in church during the lifetime of a former spouse, but it wasn't until about 2000 that we created a formal approved a policy by which we could do that. We can't just follow society, the church is meant to be different, but neither can we ignore society. And the question of how we discern our proper calling in that, I think, is one of the, the deeper questions that this whole project has raised. Toby? One of the things that, that was happening during our process was this furore, this debacle, you could say, about the bishop's pastoral statement on opposite-sex civil partnerships, which took place last year, and which was very hard for us as um, an LLF process to keep our balance through. That statement said what is simply true for the Church of England, which is that the Church of England believes that sexual relationships should only take place within heterosexual marriage. But it's wanting to work with everybody, everybody's sinful, we want to draw along people, we want to welcome everybody into the church. But actually the reaction to it just showed I don't think we can keep going with that much longer. You cannot be telling the whole of the the nation that they are sinners and writing them off, but saying, well, it's okay. This pastoral accommodation won't work any longer. But then how do you accommodate members of the Church of England who faithfully attend week in, week out? They, They give their tithes. Uh, They support the local church and would hold to a more traditional line. What the LLF process is trying to do is to to give us a language to be able to have that conversation, a language about scripture, a a language about theology, um, bringing in history, bringing in the the sciences, so that actually the, the complexification, which Andrew and Amy have talked about, 
is something that we can all take hold of and isn't just the preserve of a, of a very few. Andrew? If the bishops are heard as telling everyone, this is how we expect everyone to live and we don't as a church want anything to do with you if you're not living like that, then there's a serious problem uh, because that isn't what the church's message is. The church's message is one of inclusion and welcome. But everyone, all of us, as we are included and welcome, are not living as the church sets out is the best way to live. And therefore, there has to be, I think, some way of accommodation uh, that takes place. Now, exactly what that looks like will be worked out on the ground in different ways. And again, people experiencing it on the ground is much more powerful, I think, if it's done well. Uh, it's awful powerful if it's done badly, sadly. Um, but it's much more powerful than just reading in the newspaper, bishops say X. Amy, as you are part of the LLF uh, family, but also at the same time you're viewing it with, uh, sorry to caricature, but the more small c conservative approach of the Catholic Church to these matters. How do you view the discussion? There are some interesting parallels, I think, between the kinds of conversations that the Church of England have been conducting and the conversations that were going on in the Roman Catholic Church in the wake of the Synod of the Family and the document that came out from that, uh, which is always in Latin in our church, that's how we roll. Uh, the Latin is Amoris Laetitia, which just translates as the joy of love. And it's a very long document and one of the things it, it grapples with is the pastoral topic of divorce. Now, of course, the Church of England's position on this is different, I think, from the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church, put crudely, teaches that divorce is not permitted. Now, of course, in reality, any number of people have needed to separate and consequently formed new lives, formed new relationships, and for whom, you know, annulment for one reason or another isn't a realistic prospect. Now, what we saw arising from the Synod on the Family and in that document is an acknowledgement that there's genuine discernment at play uh, for people who are in that situation and that the church has a responsibility to rethink how it relates to people in those situations. Now, that kind of question of pastoral accompaniment has, I think, some, some parallels with the kinds of conversations that the Church of England are trying to have. Mark Chapman. I think one of the issues that emerged at the beginning of this whole process came out of the uh, House of Lords debate over the same-sex marriage bill, where the bishops were almost unanimously opposed. And I think there was a, a genuine sense of surprise that the it was carried so overwhelmingly in the House of Lords. And that, that came back with this idea about, well, how far away are the bishops now from the morality of the wider society? And if the bishops are so far away from the wider society, then in a sense, what right have the bishops got to be there in the House of Laws? It does raise those big questions about church and state, that Christian morality has to be re reassessed uh, in the light of what's happening in the wider society. In his foreword to the LLF book, the Archbishop of Canterbury sensitively emphasises the need for careful, prolonged and deep reflection regarding the often polarising issues under discussion. We must learn from the mistakes of the past. Toby, often doctrine, the interpretation of long-held stated beliefs, could be said to have contributed to partition in some areas of the church to do with gender, identity and LGBTI plus inclusion. How as a bishop do you manage 
the discord at a pastoral level? I think the first thing is to listen. And that's been just one of the of the greatest joys of this LLF process. And it's something which, well, I hope pastors and bishops are doing all the time. It's actually listening to one another. I mean, it's such an obvious point, but it has just come home to me so again and again and again. Let's not begin with positions. Let's not begin with this person saying, I believe this or this is what the Bible says. But let's actually listen to the stories of how I come to the point where I believe that this is what the Bible says in this particular case or what I believe about this or that or the other. Let's listen to where the church is at at the moment. Let's listen to the way that these Um, that this doctrine has been interpreted in the past. Let's listen to your story. Let's listen to how these all work together. And let's find a way forward together. Amy and Mark, how crucial to the debate do you think this period and the LLF work could be? It's important, I think, to do a good, solid, historic investigation of why it is that this particular issue has become the the sole defining issue in certain parts of the Anglican Communion around what counts as orthodoxy. Orthodoxy in the past was always about the person of Christ and about the nature of Christ's relationship to uh, uh, the rest of the Trinity or whatever. But now it becomes focused on a, in a very different kind of direction. And what is it uh, that that uh, represents? Is it all tied up with the kind of, uh, as often said, the kind of neo-colonialism of liberal ideas expressing themselves in different parts of the world. There's an awful lot of baggage that needs unpacking there. It's also significant, though, for the nation and the global conversation. Uh, you know, we're, we're recording this in June of 2020, and the world's on fire. You know, there's, there's, and that's partly because of exactly what, what Mark was just referring to there, there are histories of injustice and histories of, of moral discernment that are still shaping our society in violent ways and shaping our church in violent ways, whether that's literal physical harm or social exclusion or the symbolic violence of silence. Those questions of exclusion and harm are, are bound up with patterns of power. So the conversations about sex and gender and identity and so on that we've been having are are conducted fruitfully in contexts where we acknowledge that previous such discussions have been shaped by power. Off the back of that, the LLF research doesn't shirk from stating what is known, that a minority of clergy and lay members have been responsible shamefully for perpetrating sexual abuse. And because of this... Many people's attitudes towards the church have been shaped by a deep betrayal of trust. How does that statement make you feel? Well, I I recognise it. You know, I share the anger that's contained there. Of, Of course, that's how we feel when an institution that seeks to offer moral leadership and guidance does not apply that to itself in a consistent way. And that's not a critique that's specific to the Church of England. I think that's something we share. Our our church institutions are deeply flawed and they need, we need to work on the ways in which we enact injustice. And Toby, Justin Welby was very tough at the inquiry back in 2018 when he said people must be jailed if they have committed an offence. But, but 
how does it make you feel as a as a bishop of Christ? Oh, it's just it's just horrible <laughs> on so many different levels. I mean, it's horrible, particularly because of the stories of the people who've been who've been hurt, and their families, and the ripples through friends and families across generations. It's just deeply, deeply painful, and it's doubly painful because this is a church that is the bearer of the good news of Jesus Christ, which we are wanting to hold out, which is a message of forgiveness and grace and joy. But, you know, at a, at a personal level, how I deal with children in congregations where I go to minister and how I have to constantly be thinking, how is any action that I do going to be interpreted by people who see me as a bishop and see all those things on the television and in the newspapers and say, well, he's not to be trusted, is he? Um, I think the other side, which is, ex which is an extraordinary story of grace, is just how much trust there still is in the church, which I also come across on a daily basis. Um, and I find that deeply humbling. And I think all of this has got to be a huge part of the way that we do the whole of LLF. You know, we, and, and it's really important that you brought this up because we do not come to these questions in a vacuum and we do not come with the moral high ground. We come as broken vessels. Andrew Goddard. All of these issues are connected to issues of power and often, sadly, the abuse of power and the failure then of those with power to correct those abusers to actually step in uh, and deal with them. Um, and those are really challenging uh, questions and they require of the church as a whole and all of us, even if we are not ourselves abusers, a recognition of the need for penitence um, and a learning afresh um, and hearing the voices uh, of those who we have harmed. Because of where we are at this, this point of history, is the time for the Church of England then to approach the debate about gender, identity and sexuality with less intensity and perhaps more acceptance of difference, the let all things be approach? Or is that a theological hand grenade with the pin out? Andrew? Have we perhaps put too much emphasis, you know, on this area and in particular subsets within this area, then yes, maybe there needs to be less intensity in terms of the ways in which sometimes we have expressed our differences and disagreements both in terms of the intensity, in terms of the volume, but also the ways in which we speak of one another and different viewpoints, that maybe also needs to change. Acceptance of difference, though, is, you know, it depends what one means by that. By definition, these are questions that go very deep as to who we are, what a holy life looks like, what sin is that needs to be repented of. All of those sorts of questions are things that the church can't just say, let everything be. Mark. What I think this LLF process has tried to do is to show that there are different ways of trying to be a disciple of Christ and that people can live authentically uh, and still for, for, for perform that discipleship, try, try and carry out that discipleship, uh, living in the way that they see to be an authentic lifestyle and to respect that others may disagree with them. 
the problem is always where do you draw the boundaries? What are the the limits uh, of, of of those forms of lifestyle? And and I think the church has always been a messy institution. It will always remain a messy institution. And I guess we've 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 joined in the process because in a sense we don't want to declare those boundaries too rapidly. On topics of sex and relationships and gender, one solution to disagreement, of course, is to go one's own way. But that isn't what the participants of Living in Love and Faith and the wider church who are engaged in these conversations really want. What's what's being sought is a way to live together precisely because there is something that is sought through community that is good. So seeking out the good life or living discipleship, that isn't done in isolation. And I do think there's something, I mean, difficult, of course, still, but at the same time, profoundly beautiful in, in the desire that's driving that attempt. Andrew. If we're honest, officially, the Church of England does currently have some quite clear boundaries on this. And we've, we've referred to that in terms of what our formal teaching is and how, when they restated them recently, the bishops got into a lot of trouble applying them just to heterosexual couples, never mind to, to sexual minorities. And, and those boundaries are very important for many people, both in the Church of England, but also in the wider Anglican communion that has grown from the Church of England, because they are seen to be boundaries that derive from, from Scripture, boundaries that therefore show us what God's purpose is for us if we're going to live holy lives that show us the shape of what salvation looks like and salvation is about not just being where we are it's about becoming something and if we have quite contrasting even incompatible visions of what it is that the church is nurturing people to become in relation to their deepest most intimate relationships and their understanding of their sexuality and so on and so forth then that becomes a real challenge for us as as a body uh, particularly when we've got some well established doctrines and policies that some people feel are too restrictive and, and, and dehumanizing whereas others think they give us the positive vision that we should be offering even as using the language we used earlier we accommodate we accompany people um, who are not living like that and who maybe think they shouldn't live like that. And Toby, um, acceptance of difference to the point of diffusion of doctrine, blanding out of Paul's teachings, of Jesus's calling? Well, you you used the words, let it be, and I, I was wondering when you were going to bring <laughs> Liverpool in. <laughs> but, but, but actually, when, you know, when we look at where that, where that song comes from, and it's the words of Mary, isn't it? Mary yes. isn't just saying, well, let, let's just let it be what life is. She's saying, let it be what the new break-in salvation that God is offering to the world and let it be to me according to your word is saying I rejoice and I welcome that intervention of God and for me one of the great joys of the LLF process has been to say how can we be good news how can this book how can this whole process be good news for the church and and much wider than the church because there are treasures in the church about repentance, about turning our back on what we know is wrong. And we repent and then we, we say yes to, we say, let it be to God's salvation, God's new way of living, Jesus's invitation to fullness of life. 
Um, and that is, to me, the great joy of this. Mark Chapman. One of the most important aspects behind this was a, a report that was commissioned in the early 1950s by the church, which was to try and look at the whole changing understanding of biology, of what it was to be human, and of the nature of sexual identity, uh, and to recognise that actually it was nowhere near as simple as just black and white. And the church spent a lot of time looking at human sexuality and wanting to ensure that whatever it might be saying, there shouldn't be uh, punishment of people because uh, of their sort of, uh, that they were created in a particular way. The church became one of the most important voices in encouraging that discussion uh, later on in Parliament uh, in, the, uh, in the early 1960s and in fact promoting the legislation through uh, the forerunner of General Synod uh, of voting that there should be a liberalisation of laws about homosexuality. It was only really with the uh, changing nature in the early 2000s and the introduction of uh, civil partnership uh, laws that forced the church really to think again about how it addresses the issue of homosexuality. Andrew? In the immediate post-war period, the Church of England was in some ways pushing for more liberal laws in a sense of not being punitive. But those who were doing that, including the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and everyone else more or less who was advocating that, was also still very conservative in terms of what the Christian ethic should be and how Christians should live. And then when in the 90s and 2000s society moved on further, the church, rather than welcoming those changes on the whole, some Christians obviously did, including one or two bishops, they resisted those changes and they were in an even more difficult place to work out what they meant, given, as we were saying earlier, church and society aren't separate bubbles. <laughs> Churches are in societies. There's um, uh, a free church that I know, which is in a village that church has decided that they do want to um, celebrate same-sex marriages. They want to bless civil partnerships. And what has been really interesting in that context is that, as a result, they have in some ways in their local polity taken over the role of being the established church, if you like, in that village, because they are perceived as being closer to the polity than the Church of England with its own you know, with, with, with the way that it, it, it has dealt with things. And I find that a very interesting little picture because I think it, it calls into question what the relationship is between the Church of England and the nation, which is partly to be part of it, partly to stand over against it, and partly to be in conversation with sister churches in working out what is our relationship together with the society of which we're a part. That, that's a fascinating example. I had not thought of it in those terms before, of how those churches with more freedom, free churches, if you like, can become more like what the established church traditionally has been. But it also captures, I think, the fact that different church structures of governance and leadership and authority um, will vary how easily churches can make those changes. And that the Church of England, as, first of all, an Episcopal structure, um, it's much more difficult uh, because things aren't just tied to decisions of local congregations where a vote can be taken. Um, the Episcopal structures, synodical structures, make that much more difficult. And also, as we were talking about earlier, the discussions around being part of the Anglican Communion. And so those, those particular pressures on the Church of England of being Episcopally structured and part of a global communion of which it's the Mother Church make it much more difficult for 
for it to adapt on the ground to the society in a way that you might think the established church should be doing. Um, and I not put those pieces together until you gave that example, Toby. So thank you for that. Amy? I think there's a strand of theological thinking which is about the presence of God. You know, it's not sufficient or satisfying to talk in a polarised way about church and society as if God lived in the church and God needed to be brought to society so society could could learn. I don't think that's, that's, that's helpful. Instead, if we think about this theologically in terms of the presence of God, the nature of creation itself is, is as a, a work of God, that it reflects God, that it's the nature of God's creative presence to make God's self known in and amongst us all. We all who are broken, we all who are dirty. You know, God's present in the broken and the dirty. You know, even even us. Because God's present in, in a particular way in places of injustice. So I do think attention to, to moments of tension or to places of pain, that attention is theologically meaningful as well as any sort of rational or reasoning conclusions or agreements we come to in that process. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to Mark Chapman, Toby Howarth, Amy Dorton and Andrew Goddard. And should you wish to rate or even review this podcast, we will be dead chuffed. Please blow the metaphorical bugle about living in love and faith and you'll discover further resources at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening.